0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for multi-channel networks and digital media companies, including Maker Studios, Awesomeness TV, Studio 71, and more. The Paladin platform streamlines processes, increases efficiency, and grows revenue for media companies that represent more than 200,000 content creators and a collective 15 billion monthly views. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You are listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Dan Weinstein, co-founder and president of Studio 71. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with a little bit of your background. You studied advertising and film at Boston University and then made your way from the East Coast to the entertainment capital of the world, Los Angeles. What prompted you to move LA and start your career at United Talent Agency?
1: I think there were two predominant factors that really contributed to it. One was I was in a class and, and I sort of was listening to one of my professors, you know, wax on about the entertainment industry, even though it was in a marketing class and, and sort of, I, you know, I went to a school that was known for film and television and communications, but I never wanted to make movies. I didn't, I didn't really want to be a director or a sound designer or an editor. And I didn't realize that there was a, a way to get into sort of the business of movies. And when I sort of figured that out, that was really interesting to me because I had always loved movies and television and, and sort of wanted to be in and around that. And so I started to look into it. I read the book, The Mailroom, and I was hooked and I was like, I, this is what I want to do. Then it was, do I do that in New York or do I do that in LA? And I realized, A, I really don't like the cold weather. Um, and so if I have the opportunity to move to L.A., I probably should take it, especially when I'm young. It'll be harder when I'm, when I'm older. And B, the industry is much more vast, especially for the entry level, just starting out type positions in, in the industry than in New York, which is much more concentrated. And so I thought it would be easier to find a job to work my way in in Los Angeles versus New York. And so shortly after graduating, I spent, uh, you know,
0: one or two months kind of looking in New York, not really, and then ended up just saying, I'll move to LA. And tell us about your entree into the entertainment business and, and first starting to work at UTA.
1: I moved out without a job. I just was like, you know what, I-, I can be a waiter, I can do anything to make a little extra cash while I'm trying to figure out what I need to do or how I wanted to get in. I did know that I did th- the, the, a good way in would be one of the training programs at a talent agency uh, through a number of friends of mine and, and reading books like the mailroom, et cetera, even if I didn't want to necessarily be an agent. And so I spent a good, you know, four or five weeks, three, four weeks somewhere in there trying to find a bartending job or a waiting job. And it was the summer and little did I know that you needed to have like a headshot and like a resume just to be a, a bartender or a waiter. Like they're the most coveted jobs in, in Los Angeles was having a real hard time finding that. And through some random connection of one of my friends in college, her sister-in-law's brothers, nephews, cousins, whatever, was an agent at UTA and somehow finagled my way into, to get an interview and was called for a job before I even had to take a job as a, as a waiter, which was good because I don't know if I would ever gotten one or not. Uh, ended up in the mailroom there and you know, spent a good three, four weeks in the, in the mailroom when a, when a job opened up. And I just wanted to get out of the mailroom and onto a desk as fast as humanly possible. I took it. It was in alternative television packaging at the time. Reality TV was kind of just really uh, starting to boom. This is, I think, 2004. And then on from there. And how did you find your way into the digital side of things? You know, I think when I moved out here, I, I very much had it in my mind that I wanted to be Jerry Bruckheimer. That, that I wanted to make those movies on that scale and be that, you know, that credible. And, and, and so I was trying to figure out a way to do that. I ended up working for a big talent agent at, at UTA for a little over a year and really loved sort of the talent element of it that I thought I, I didn't think I would love it as much as I did. But, you know, on the eve of sort of like, are you going to be promoted or, or, you know, we're, you know, you can be a coordinator now, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, you know what, if I don't try going the producing route, I'm going to regret it, I think. And so I told my boss, thanks, but no thanks. But can you help me find a job to set me on the path of becoming a producer? And I, she ended up getting me a job working for Stacey Scher, who's a big movie and television producer. At the time, the company was called Double Feature Films, formerly Jersey Films with Danny DeVito. And they produced some of the, my favorite movies of all time, you know, Pulp Fiction and Get Shorty and you know, a whole host of others. And so I thought that was a really interesting opportunity. I spent six months working for her, seven months working for her. And a couple of things happened. One, there there wasn't, it was a very small shop. I really got an intimate look at what making movies at a studio was like, the length of the process. I mean, they had things in gestation for nine, 10 years that were in active development for that amount of time. And they had their team around them. And so there wasn't really sort of that upwards trajectory as, or as I thought there would be. And I really started to get a little disenchanted with the process, right? They're making less and less movies these days, less and less original material. Indie film is kind of dying and maybe going more digital. Myspace, if you can remember that, was just sort of getting going. I think YouTube was, was really just starting and they were getting sued by everybody. And so I thought I need to be in a place that was a little bit more on the cutting edge, a little bit more entrepreneurial, not not set in in sort of the ways of tradition and how things were. Not that, that, that you can't succeed at that anymore, and, that, and they did phenomenally well. But I needed to satiate sort of a little bit more of an entrepreneurial spirit. So I ended up meeting with the collective guys, Gary Bingo in particular, um, and then Michael Green and, and Sam Maydew, who I knew through my UTA days. And they pitched me on this idea of a management company It was really talent-driven, talent-first, but could you build enough infrastructure to take advantage of the fact that now, or just starting, an artist could have a direct relationship with a consumer through social media, through things like MySpace and now YouTube and what have you? And then could that put you in a position to eventually partner with said artist and sort of circumvent that more traditional Hollywood path? So. Could you go around the movie studios, the record labels, the TV networks? Could you go direct to an audience? Is there value there? How can you extract that value? Sort of were all the questions we were looking for answers, but it was really interesting. It got me excited about what they were, how they were looking at the world. I joined in sort of late 2007, primarily doing digital marketing. I would say the rest is history, but we'll talk. About next. But <laughs> well, let's I'm talk about the history. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's great. So,
0: so tell us about the early days of what at that time was the collective, a management company.
1: We were representing a, a really nice roster of comedians, in particular, as well as some actors and, and writers, etc. But we were we were working with Martin Lawrence, and and in particular, through Martin, I think we're representing a up and coming comedian named Cat Williams. Cat had a lot of credibility in a very specific demographic but sort of was very, very lesser known than your sort of Ellen's and Jerry Seinfeld's of the world, obviously. And, you know, the old Hollywood way would have been to knock on HBO's door and and say, look, I've got this really talented guy. Will you do a half hour, hour comedy special with him? That was the venue to build your sort of stand-up comedy career. But he would have been in line for years behind the stable of whomever HBO or Showtime was, was dealing with at the, at the time that was a, a larger name. So we decided... Because we knew how voracious his audience was, in, in, and we knew how to reach them and what sort of areas they were, what websites they frequent, and all that sort of stuff, we thought if we could finance a stand-up special, make it efficiently, that at the very worst, we could throw up a website and sell DVDs direct to the fans in the audience, or take them on tour, or sell them out of the back of a van, and come close to sort of breaking even, And the rest was only upside. And so we financed the first comedy special called uh, the Pimp Chronicles part one with Cat Williams. And we ended up going to HBO this time through the acquisition side and not the development side. Cat was a brilliant comedian, is, is, was a brilliant comedian. And HBO ended up buying it for us for not a lot of money. And in retrospect, um, and maybe not even in retrospect, we would have paid HBO to air the special because that was the crux of our marketing. That was how we were going to reach the, the biggest audience possible. But we retained all the rights. We owned the home video and we released it through, I think, Vivendi Entertainment at the time into Walmart and Target and into the right uh, you know, sort of big box retailers that would service that demographic. And then we did a lot of online marketing to build up the buzz, et cetera, et cetera. Focused a lot on YouTube at the time. And uh, ended up selling, I don't know, it was like three or four million DVDs. It was a huge, huge success. And and we retained everything. Kat and us partnered together. Sort of, again, it was sort of the realization of that theory that could you do this in sort of a different way. Mm-hmm.
0: Helps to validate that model that you really can reach exactly. the consumer directly. Exactly.
1: And I'll accelerate a, a little bit because that was really interesting. And then we, threw sort of some funny circumstances around marketing some of our other stand-up DVDs, we were introduced and signed uh, Lucas Cruikshank, who's the, who had this character Fred on YouTube. And at first glance, it looked like this, you know, sort of kid with a camcorder kind of speeding up his voice. And saying, like, he couldn't even watch it sort of as an adult. But he had built up this following that was sort of insane. And at the time, we didn't even know, you know, was this a real audience? Was this like a hacker? Like, how, how is he bigger than Universal Music Group on YouTube? Like that was it was it was Fred I think it was Ryan Higa at the time and then Universal and it didn't, that did not compute to us and so we signed him as an acting client and we decided to do a couple of tests we cast him in an episode of iCarly he spiked the ratings we put out a holiday EP with some original music that we didn't spend a lot of money on but it was pretty catchy kind of uh, Chipmunks esque style uh, sold a hundred thousand units over the holidays off of two music videos. Driving to iTunes, I mean that, that's like recording artist level kind of sales, and so it validated the fact that it was, it was absolutely a real audience. Not only was it a real audience, but it, we could move them to other platforms, and we could trigger a purchase right so that was really valuable information. So we decided to, in the same vein as cat, the same model, make a movie. With this kid around this character that he created, this world that, if you, when you really get in, it's this really kind of edgy world with characters, bullies, dads, like the love interest. It wasn't just this kid squeaking into a camera. And so we financed a movie. We actually partnered with Brian Robbins to help produce the movie. And we cast a great team around the project. So the writer was a co-EP on The Family Guy, and the director was a hot up-and-coming video director and, and sort of gave it its best shot to be great. Made it, and then ended up licensing it to Nickelodeon, I think, in 2008 if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Wow. So this was even before the launch of awesomeness TV but, oh, way before. Yeah. We but did, maybe I
1: think we did two or three Fred movies before Brian launched
0: awesomeness. I mean, we, we invited him into that. Sure. Process. Which ultimately became a right. studio focused on doing exactly what you're talking right. about. The
1: interesting thing is for a funny anecdote, we tested the movie cause we, we, we made it. We didn't know what we wanted to do with it just yet. We, we hired the uh, testing company to to test it. It does all the major studios and you know, they, they, cast an audience from some town in some somewheresville and, and screen the movie and then do the questionnaire. And the guy came back and he said, I, I can't, I don't believe these results. Like they're not, they, this can't be the case. We're like, What? He said, your movie tested higher. So more positively with kids than almost any other movie I've ever tested in my 25 years. This includes Disney movies and Pixar and just everything. He's like, better than Shrek. Like it tested through the roof So, of course, we're like jumping up and down and high-fiving, like we're going to be rich, blah, blah, blah. He said, you know, slow down, slow down. Here's the weird part. I've never seen anything test so low with parents and adults. And so they sucked the air out of the room, and we realized that the parent needs to take the kid to the movie theater, buy the ticket, and tell their parent friends that it was worth the trip to actually work. That, we thought, was going to be too tall of an order. and and too much of a risk. And so we wanted to keep the content inherently free, or at least take the parent equation out of it, which was, let's put it on TV. And let's find a a marketing partner that can reach the audience that we're trying to reach. And it worked. It was the highest rated cable movie of the year. It beat out like Band of Brothers on HBO. Like it was a huge, huge success. And then again, validated the model. Um, And this time, Not a stand-up comedian, but something that was sort of digitally native coming out of the YouTube ecosystem. So that was really exciting. And that was like the first real a success that the collective digital studio would have, but but that cemented our vision that this is kind of where we needed to go.
0: I like the fact that it also underscores the importance of using the data to formulate the strategy and select the appropriate distribution outlet. That's
1: right. That's right. Still do that today. A little Mm -hmm. different, but still do it today. Sure.
0: Tell us how... All of these learnings, the stuff you did with Cat Williams, the stuff you're doing with Fred, eventually Annoying Orange and others. How did that demonstrate that there was a clear need for a digitally focused studio?
1: Yeah, I mean, during the whole Fred stuff, I was introduced to you know the kid that created the Annoying Orange, uh, Dane Bottingheimer. And through a mutual friend of ours at uh, JibJab, of all places, uh, Dane was working as an animator. And, and the, their CEO calls me up and says, I've seen what, you done, what you've done with the Fred stuff. Here's this kid, he's created this thing. I don't know what to do with it. It's not for jib jab. Will you meet with him. And so that's how I met with him on, when, after he produced like the second Annoying Orange video that was getting like 100 million views and sort of looked at it in a very similar way, which was how do we take this thing, this character, this world that this kid has created on this ecosystem and transplant it over here? Looking at it much the way that it, it was an incubator to find talent, new talent discovery mechanism, if you will. And then the real economics and the real uh, value would be in traditional entertainment. However, through that process, we realized that more and more uh, the audience was actually consuming their primary content in these ecosystems, whether it be on mobile phones or on YouTube or what have you. Between Fred and the Annoying Orange at the time, we had over 100 million views on that content that cost us nothing to create and nothing to market to. And so, you know, then the thought would obviously go to, well, if it was instead of being a hundred million, could it be a billion or 10 billion or whatever the number would be, that starts to look pretty interesting. And I think advertisers were starting to play in the space a little bit. And we just, we kind of knew that the way that the the new generations were consuming content was shifting, not that TV was going anywhere or films were going anywhere. And I don't think they're still going anywhere uh, necessarily, but that that this new ecosystem was something more powerful than we had thought and the idea would be again like we did with the management company don't look at it as a representation business look at it more as a as a media enterprise with real infrastructure can we build real businesses around these creators these influencers and this audience while you know also building our own our own business. And so we early on decided to invest heavily in infrastructure, right? As a, as a management company, you would never have a sales team. you never have a technology team. It would be a manager and assistant and the talent. Uh, that's how you scale that business. And so we decided to, to, to really put some infrastructure towards it. There was a lot of incoming inquiries and in business and people just feeling around and it just seemed right at the time. And then ironically, YouTube invited us to be an MCN. And part of their rationale was they didn't understand how to deal with me in particular. So I, I remember calling up because very much, it did start very much as like a management uh, relationship with the talent. I
0: was managing Dane. I was managing uh, Rhett and Link and some of this other talent. And you were generating these huge volumes of views on their platform. So obviously they knew how the creators and the channels were doing. Right. But did they know that you were involved?
1: Well, that's the point. So, so they knew who, exactly who the creators were. They definitely wanted to be in business with and around the creators. And then I would call... Or I'd get forwarded an email or something, and I'd say, you know, Dane doesn't want that, or Rhett and Link, can we do this, or blah, blah, blah. And they're like, who are you? So I'm their manager. They're like, well, what's a manager? I'm a, what do you mean, what's a manager? Like, Brad Pitt has a manager. I'm their manager. I speak on their behalf. I'm helping them build their businesses, you know, yada, yada. They're like, I don't, I don't understand this. And so they, they sort of asked us to become an MCN, which in their mind at the time, Gave us the the right, at least legally, to communicate to them on the talent's behalf. I don't know if they knew what they were getting into, but but that was sort of you know the impetus around it.
0: And can you place this in time? When was that?
1: 2010 or 11? Okay,
0: so you'd been doing this for a number of years, working yeah, I, uh, with the talent, but yeah. eventually YouTube said, "Hey, you know yeah. this is a this is a real business. Yeah. These creators are moving audience. We need to yeah." And a I started
1: I started exploring other platforms at the time. YouTube was the only game in town. I was sitting on this. I don't mean to belittle them by calling them assets, but this this huge audience network essentially from these creators. And so I went into the marketplace and I was looking at things like AOL and, and Blip TV at the time and others and trying to figure out are there ways to share audience or how do I maximize CPMs, the elusive CPM? And where can I find more advertising dollars? And do you know, do we have to be so beholden to to YouTube at the time? And that ended up sort of culminating in this you know, we should double down, become sort of uh, an MCN and 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 sort of build an enterprise on, on on top of what YouTube was already providing to the talent, because inherently they were a technology company or, a, you know, an engineering, a social platform. And we were a talent company, mm-hmm. a content company. And so
0: it made sense to sort of try to do that. And that's when we sort of became an MCN. And so that officially formalized... Collective Digital Studio, that's the point from which Michael Green's collective management company became the four of you really focused on building a digital video business. At that outset, what, what was your thinking? What was kind of the vision for the company at that point?
1: The idea was was not that dissimilar than the original, which was can you can you build up enough infrastructure to help artists, help creators maximize their value in the marketplace, retain ownership, retain rights? you know, the Annoying Orange television show is still owned by Dane and us, not Cartoon Network. And how do you maximize where the dollars are coming from? So in this world, a lot of the dollars were coming from advertisers, brands, sponsors, etc. So could we build up a sales team to help bring opportunity to these creators as opposed to them just kind of fielding a few incoming inquiries? Can we really commoditize it to a certain extent and sell it into the marketplace like a TV network would? And so we spent a lot of time doing that and building out a a sales apparatus to, to take that. And then the idea was, can you build up a a little bit of scale? Because if you have scale, you have a little bit more leverage in the marketplace. You can just, you can execute at a higher level. Um, you get out of the one-off, you know, deals here and there and start having real relationships. And we understood the talent. We were close to the talent. We could help them execute and we could sort of elevate what had been going on sort of previous was, was sort of the idea. And then on the content side, so it was always about brands, content, and talent, you know, and how how that sort of triangle continues to sort of flow around itself. The brand support, the content support, the talent talent sports, the content, and the brand.
0: It's sort of a, a cyclical pyramid, if you will. And we just, we just
1: kind of doubled down in that, in that arena.
0: Let's talk about the scale component a little bit more. So we're at the dawn of the MCN era, yeah. and we see networks like Maker Studios, eventually Awesomeness TV, Screen Machinima being launched at the same point, and they really focus on scaled channel aggregation, right? Yeah. Whereas your approach was much more sticking to your talent management roots, thinking about kind of building a boutique network and focused on how do we work closely with these talents to leverage the potential for them on right. multiple platforms. Yeah. Why that thinking?
1: Very well informed. So look, we we came from Hollywood. We realized very early on that you can't scale what is inherently and will continue to be a service-based business to such an extent without sacrificing the level of service that you're providing, right? And hits drive the business. We're not interested in sort of playing in the long tail. I think other companies came at it less from the Hollywood side of things, And more from the technology side of things or an ad network side, or an ad network side of things, which was just like scale, 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 scale. We'll figure out what to do with it when we have it. By the way, not unlike things like Twitter, et cetera, it's sort of just like get as much eyeballs and audience as you can. And then you'll figure out what to do. And and we didn't want to do that. We wanted to be an entertainment company. We wanted to to have a product that that had real value in the marketplace and that you could distinguish because at some level of scale, Maker Studios or Full Screens network is not that different from YouTube itself, right? It's just a bunch of everything in that ecosystem. Whereas we really were focused on premium creators, premium content, um, stuff that had real scaled audience and, and engaged audience behind it and stuff that we thought we could really build businesses around.
0: Was it ever tough at that point when you when you can see that those vanity metrics were coming to play as it relates to advertisers choosing where to allocate dollars, or even on the corporate development side where venture capital and others are looking at placing capital and assigning valuations?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was pretty binary at the time. And, and we still suffer from this a little bit, to be honest with you, which is number one and number two in any given sort of marketplace. And, and it's the vanity numbers, it's the scale, it's the this or that are the ones that are just out in front of the sort of zeitgeist, the the press, the what have you, you know, they have the big we're 11 billion views a month or we're this or we're that or whatever. And so in the early days when MCNs would get written about, it was always the maker and the machinima and sort of the full screen because they were the three sort of biggest. They were the ones that also early on brought in, Big venture capitalists and investors to help propagate their their message. We didn't need that earlier on. We we actually had a, a very cash flow positive business in the management company and were reinvesting in sort of the digital studio and up until a certain point hadn't needed to raise any outside capital and so we didn't have the Peter Chernin or the Mark Suster or the whomever that was that was you know fighting that battle for us and again as a part of our DNA we were always the guy behind the guy. Our successes are when the talent was out in front and doing something amazing that we helped them do. And they oftentimes, we get a lot of the credit for that. We would take sort of the back seat, And so I think some of our biggest successes were sort of secondary in terms of corporate PR, because they were about Freddie Wong in video game high school, or they were about Fred and the Nickelodeon movies. It wasn't really about Studio 71 or Collective Digital Studio. And I think there's a, a bit of that we still suffer from. That
0: last comment is interesting. What do you mean by that?
1: Just that. I think that, that we still, to this day, like one of the, our, I'll give you an example. One of our, my intent is not to make this sound salacious, but we've been doing a lot of work with The Rock. We've launched his YouTube channel to, to pretty good success. You know, he's at a million and a half subscribers in not a lot of time. We're producing all of that content. And when it's written about in the press, you know, when, you know, the heist, when the millennials, the musical thing that we created, certainly with them, but what we created gets placed all around. It's the rock, the rock, the rock, the rock, the rock. And a bit of that is, you know, purposeful. We, we want the rock to be the 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 front and center, the front and, center and, and the success. But we could also benefit from a little bit of that halo effect that I think that we tend to not get sometimes.
0: Well, it's interesting because in, in some ways, your business looks a lot more like UTA, CAA, WME than it does Maker Studios, Fullscreen, Awesomeness. And I think all of those have undergone an evolution of the business model and have diverged along different paths. At a point in time, it seemed like there very well could be talent agencies that focus specifically on digital talent, right? You had Big Frame. You've had others, certainly in other parts of the world, like gleam Futures in the UK, Why didn't Collective Digital Studio continue to just be a talent company? And maybe that would have prevented UTA and WME and CAA from getting into the game in the way that they have today. What do you think about that? Is there enough of a business to build around digital talent representation?
1: Yeah, I think at the time we made the decision, I don't think that there was. And I think that we had a management company. And there were two things that were sort of weighing on us. One is there wasn't a tremendous amount of enterprise value to a management company, primarily because you didn't own any assets. The Talent could come and go and they always do, always, without a doubt. Some stay longer than others, but they always, at some point, will, will, will go. So uh, you're at the whims of talent. You aren't creating any assets that, that you own or that you can sell or that contribute to your value. And at the end of the day, it sort of has a cap on it because it's a 10% ish 10 whatever you know percent business and you can only take on as many clients as you can handle and and so it has a built-in in ceiling in it which by the way is why entities like WME and CAA and UTA are heavily diversifying right they're buying UFC they're buying IMG and, and Droga and the rodeo and and all sorts of things like that it's for that reason they're creating more owned assets, they're creating more enterprise value beyond just the service business, but at the core, talent drives everything. So that was the dichotomy that we were sort of dealing with. And the other piece of it is there are certain you know, sort of rules that that agents you know, and, and to a lesser extent managers have to, to play by in terms of financing and owning and producing and all that sort of stuff that we wanted to, to do. We wanted to sort of play in the content game. We wanted to finance material. We wanted to own content. We wanted to distribute and syndicate it all over the world. We wanted to maintain uh, relationships with advertisers and brands, and you can't do that really as a service provider. There's, there's a lot of inherent conflict in what we do, and we're, we're making deals with our own talent oftentimes, which a lot of the times are, are lucrative, but, but also can be a little bit conflicted. I think we felt that the, the, the route to go for us that would have more, again, enterprise value and uh, opportunity
0: would be being more like a media company than sort of a management company or an agency. Because you retain that flexibility. And it occurs to me as you're saying that, that that's probably also what's best for the talent, right? In traditional talent, they they have an outlet, right? Through Hollywood, they can get... Uh, gigs and, and of course, be in TV and movies. With digital talent, the right opportunity might not be that right. It could be creating their own merchandise line, or a board game, or you know, That's some right. other kind of online distribution. And, and by keeping all of your options open and building the infrastructure that you did so early on, you had those options and those resources to help deploy the talent in the areas that made sense for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and we don't even know what some of the opportunities are. I mean, you know, Kickstarter comes around, and and there's a whole other avenue of, of of opportunity and. You know, the live streaming platforms and this and that and the other thing, it's, it's sort of evolving every day. Um, and so we try to be nimble and have enough expertise and, and infrastructure around to be able to execute for, for these creators, which basically come down to how do you sort of extract the value, of, I, I don't want to use the word exploit, but, but the audience that they've built, right? Or monetize that audience that they've built. And we play nice with agents too. It's not it's not a if or, it's, it's very much they can be a part of the team and they especially when a talent wants to play in, in sort of that traditional sort of uh, world, whether it be, you know, television or film or, or, or what have you, certainly had a tremendous amount of value.
0: In July 2015, German broadcaster ProSieben purchased a controlling stake in CDS at a valuation of $240 million. How did you determine that ProSieben was the right partner for you?
1: So this is interesting. It goes to what's exciting about the future. So ProSieben had a subsidiary, a company that they owned called Studio 71, and it was a German MCN. It was the biggest one in the marketplace, one of the biggest (laughs) ones in the marketplace. What was interesting about Studio 71 was that ProSieben was able to sell the advertising inventory on YouTube through their television sales group directly through an ad server into, into YouTube which none of the others were able to do. And by proxy or by virtue, they they were able to increase the CPMs or the value to the content creators pretty much instantaneously, which was a real value proposition for them. They also had relation, you know, they're the number one or two broadcaster in the territory and the relationship with the television network and all those other things was very attractive to the talent. And they had a very similar mindset to us, which was hits drive the business. We don't want to be long tail. We want to work with the right and the biggest talent. And so the idea was, Okay, if we were to merge these two entities or or share our sort of learnings and and sort of expertise, could you replicate what we're doing in the U.S., what they were doing in uh, Germany all over the world? And could you set up sort of satellite offices in local territories designed to execute both on a local level and on a global level? Right. So a fully integrated company that was global in, in, in nature. And so, for example, ProSieben can now sell our inventory in our network in Germany that has incremental value to our creators and, and, and people that are traveling to Germany or what have you that we, we have the ability to execute over there. Similarly, in Canada, we've got deals with, with broadcasters and, and advertisers that are buying out our inventory. We have an office in Canada with seven people. The talent that live there can walk into an office, deal with a partner manager, deal with you know whatever have production resources, etc. And so we're executing very much lo- in their local market, but also executing across the board. So Matt Santoro, who is a Canadian talent, Lily Singh is a Canadian talent. We're operating in the U.S. at a very high level as well, and so we started an office in the U.K. Latin America is next. Australia coming soon. Other other territories in in Europe to follow. So the idea was take what we've built and sort of globalize it, and that's why they were an interesting partner. They 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 saw that vision as well. They believed in that. They looked at their business very similar to the way that, that, that we do, and they're a
0: very respected you know media company in the in the world. Seemed like a a, a good Partnership. It's interesting to me because ProSieben is perhaps one of the most, I'd say, disciplined investors in this space, right? They've looked at all of the MCN deals prior to this one and they passed on a lot of them, right? And there's kind of this rivalry, and RTL was so inquisitive in the space, right, with Style Hall, with Div Move, with Broadband TV. And ProSieben hadn't really made any bets until, of course, the, with the Collective Digital Studio deal. And they started by making a small investment, right at around twenty percent or something, and then worked with you for a long time to make sure that was a good partnership. So, what has your experience been in working with them? And it's been good. I mean, we've been
1: growing the partnership.
0: I think that they brought a lot of things to the table that we've needed,
1: and there's also some challenges in terms of how we used to operate the business that we have to sort of get comfortable with. You know, for for example, for a long time, a lot of you know the decisions around here were made with you know my partners and I. Getting in a room, debating something for an hour, getting a gut feeling about, it and saying, "Yeah, hey, let's try it," you know. And and more often than not, we, we we tended to be right. We were on the right path. But that's how we did it. Not that there was no analysis. There was. It was just. It was very um, fast, nimble, and and sort of startup mode. Yeah, startup mode. Now there's a lot more process. There's a lot more. I, I don't want to say oversight. Is that's not the right word. Formality. Formality and analysis and everything. Every deal. Every venture that we that we want to explore, you know, has to have a, a business case around it. It has to fit into a P and L and a budget and all that sort of stuff. And and I think that we needed more of that. But I also think getting used to that has been just challenging from a, how we were operating. I think that's good. I think they give us a lot of credibility in the marketplace. Not that we weren't credible before, but but having their backing and and having them. Help us operate globally, which we didn't really have the ability to do on our own and out of the U.S. is really valuable. And uh, you know, they know they need to be in the space, right? They know they know where television is headed. They know that they need to um, be a big digital player, and and so you know, they they made a bet in us, and, and we make up a big piece of their digital portfolio at the moment. And so it's been good.
0: When the acquisition was initially announced, the plan was to call the entity Collective Studio 71, kind of along the lines of the merger that you mentioned. And I don't think a lot of people understand where the name comes from. They have two channels. Sure. They own Channel 1 and Channel 7. Ah, sure. So 71. Okay, terrific. And so what eventually led to wanting to call the business Studio 71 and just stick with the existing?
1: This is something that we debated for a long time. We had felt... That we had built up a lot of brand equity in the name Collective, albeit in different iterations. There was a Collective Management Group, and Collective Digital Studio, and Collective Sounds, which was our music label. And, so, um, and there was another entity called the Collective, an audience network that was very much in our business, which we didn't realize when we got into the business. It was sort of this digital ad network or an audience network, which is a little confusing. Um, but we, we did think that, that there was some value in the collective. So the idea was, you know, how do you, you memorialize this by keeping the collective in some way, but also knowing that we merged with another entity and then collective studio, collective digital studio, 71 or collective studios. However, what we were doing, it just kind of didn't make a lot of sense. It, it always got short to the collective anyway. And I think we, we wanted to use it as an opportunity to sort of signal sort of 2.0 of what it is that we were doing. And so that was the right time, if at all, we were going to go through a facelift and a rebrand to do it. So very, you know, for like a month or two, it was Collective Studio 71. And then we made the idea that, look, we're going to be a really integrated company. It needs to be Studio 71 US, Studio 71 Germany, Studio 71 UK, Studio 71 Canada. It all needs to be Studio 71 rebrand new 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 brand message, new identity, new load the whole thing, and so it was just the right time to do
0: now it makes a lot of sense. so what does the future hold for studio seventy one
1: uh, so I alluded to it in in the answer to your last question, which was how do we operate globally right? The world is only getting smaller in my opinion, more people, but smaller, and there's more platforms, more people are coming online every day. the younger generations that are that are sort of coming up and the older generations that are sort of going away are consuming content in very different ways. And you need to be op- able to be operate globally. So we're really focused on opening up new markets and doing it right. Not like some of the other uh, entities or competitors that we have that are just sort of on a land grab. Again, that long tail sort of just what have you. But how do we work with the right talent in the right market and be able to execute for them? That? that's going to be a big focus coming into the next year. And then, you know, it is sort of this cliche to say, but content has always and will always be king. So we want to double down on our, our output of content. I think we produced three or four movies last year and a handful of small series. I think we want to double our output for next year. There's a lot more buyers out there than ever before and everybody needs content and everybody needs eyeballs. And
0: Who are your primary buyers? Are they traditional folks like Netflix and uh, uh, studios? Are you looking at short form? I mean, look, platforms? Netflix has
1: bought everything that we've ever produced, whether it be in a primary, exclusive, original kind of window or in a secondary window after some sort of digital distribution. Almost everything that we've ever produced is on Netflix in some capacity. Or not. And so, yeah, we're selling to those those players as well, but they kind of operate more in the traditional model, right? And then we, we're working a lot with the YouTube, Of the world and Go 90s and Comcast's Watchable and CISO, and there's a a bevy of them internationally and and new ones coming up every We've supplied a lot of content to the late vessel and others. There's just, there's seen, and there's a lot of OTT platforms and they're all looking for content and eyeballs. And, And we have one thing that sets us apart from a lot of the people that are trying to create content for those platforms, which is we have a built in audience predisposed to wanting to watch the content that we're producing because primarily the way that we're developing or producing our content
0: is in tandem with
1: you know our clients. Uh, well, our not
0: clients. only that, it's your DNA, right? right? It's you've our been, DNA. Yeah, right. you've been doing that for years.
1: And so when we go into a Verizon or even a YouTube, the pitch is always, look, we're starting with the material. It's got to be great right? We're not interested in just kind of throwing, quote unquote, influencer content against the wall. It's got to be good. But our biggest differentiator is that we're going to bring audience to you, like to your new platform, whether it be YouTube Red or Go90 or whatever. I think um, we, we produced this series with Logan Paul for Comcast Watchable. He's driving a tremendous amount of new audience to that platform, simply by virtue of that he's telling people that this content that he's proud of is on the, in this ecosystem. Uh, so that's really valuable to us. We want to double down on that. So we got a project coming out with The Rock next year with YouTube uh, we're excited about. And and so I think content and the globalization of our business are really our two primary focuses next year.
0: So obviously things have changed since the early days, but what is the hardest part in your experience of being an entrepreneur?
1: Uh, you know, I think just that the landscape changes so fast and, and staying up on all the new platforms, all the latest trends and changes and business models and, and everything like that is, is, can be really challenging. You know, staying focused, I think, as an entrepreneur is is challenging sometimes. You know, you want to do a lot and you have a lot of opportunity and then figuring out how to sort of systematically approach, like, we're going to knock this down, we're going to knock this down, then we're going to go here, then we're going to go there versus kind of trying to throw everything at everything all at once uh, can be challenged. So being very disciplined. And then not getting ahead of yourselves. You know, the other thing that, you know, entrepreneurs can can feel is a lot of excitement for a lot of opportunity out there. There's a new idea. There's a new something to do all the time. But how do you do it in a way that's really beneficial to you
0: and your business, I think is is challenging. I think you touched on two key themes that I've seen repeatedly that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with focus, right? Trying to do too much and overscaling, right? Trying to get too big in one area or multiple areas too quickly and not thinking about kind of the core foundation behind it. Yeah, absolutely. What great books have you read either all time or recently that uh, you'd like to share?
1: I'll tell you one I'm excited about to read, which I hear a lot of great things about that I'll be taking on vacation is uh, Shoe Dog. With uh, or the Phil Uh Knight story, I tend to. I have a long commute, so I tend to like listening to books on our industry or other entrepreneurs. So recently, I've you know I've read uh, the CAA book, um, phenomenal, yeah, really great. The ESPN book, which is probably one of my favorite books, just because I I love ESPN and the sports, and that story is just fantastic and really rich. I read uh, the Elon Musk book and the Amazon book and and you know the Twitter book and Steve Jobs, and I love those kind of you know books and stories just find it fascinating. I, I remember one of the really interesting things was, and I'll, I'll end on this, was I read in succession somehow the, the ESPN book, the Steve Jobs book, and Disney War, which is essentially the story of Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and that era of Disney. And they all had the same characters in the book. And how they were being portrayed was kind of different and interesting, but the timing was all the same. Because... Steve Jobs was was at Pixar and selling it to Disney. And and that was a big part of the Steve Jobs book and era over there. And then ESPN was also being sold to Disney at that time or ABC from ABC. They were investors were in this one and that one. And all the characters just sort of uh, tangentially were a part of all these different worlds and books. And it's kind of just interesting to read them in succession like that. What is the best piece of
0: advice you've ever received?
1: I'd say there's there's two. One, I, I credit to my dad who always said that, you know, on the, on the path to sort of success, find a void, find something that somebody's not doing and fill it. And if you do, you'll sort of make yourself irreplaceable or invaluable. And so in, even in businesses that I was in, where there was a specific role, I've always looked for things that are, what are we not doing? What is somebody at this place not doing? And how do I step in to do it? Sort of how this whole thing started. I was brought on to do one thing. And then I realized no one was really focused on the digital space, stepped in and just kind of figured it out, right. And then became kind of invaluable in, you know, in doing so that, that would be one. And then there's a long story that is for a time when we're having a cocktail together that I will tell you, that's quite funny. But, uh, I learned, uh, from Stacy share based on a mishap that, you know, sort of the entertainment industry or industry in general, you know, the real currency is information and you want to get as much as you can and give as little as you can. And so don't overshare, don't be braggadocious, don't play into the rumor, whatever, like collect, don't give. That's your, that's your currency. So I thought both of those were pretty, pretty valuable. Hmm.
0: Do you think that latter piece of advice still holds true today? I mean, one of the kind of core tenets of my philosophy is to try and be generous, right. And to give and share information. And I think that comes back to you in spades that the idea of kind of withholding connections, political capital information, is not necessarily the best operational policy anymore.
1: It's an interesting thought. And I guess I guess that was, it, it's been very sort of specific, especially in sort of the old Hollywood, like who's writing what script and who's doing, you want to be the first at the table. You want to know the most. You kind of, you're trying to extract opportunity for you and your clients, and you do so by being well-informed. And if you're informing somebody else who is potentially your competition Unnecessarily, then, then, then that could be a problem. That said, you do make a good point that, that sharing of knowledge and sharing of, of information, I, I tend to think we as a culture at the moment overshare, but also has a lot of value to
0: it. And, and you're right, it does come back to you in, in, in sort of space. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what would you say?
1: I think we're in a content boom at the moment. And I think, you know, what I mean by that is there's a lot of players out there buying content for new platforms or for, you know, established platforms and new new products or whatever the case may be that I don't think will sustain itself. I think that there will be some consolidation. There'll be some losers and you'll have, you know, your winners who are probably well-established at the moment anyway The Netflix, Amazon who is kind of coming more into our space versus otherwise. But I think there's going to be some definite, uh, I think that boom is, is, is going to wear out soon. I think we're going to have our survivor moment soon. And I don't think we've had it yet. And, and so what I mean by that is reality television had been around for a long time. You know, real world, this, that, cops, you know, this was, this was reality television, but it was considered the dregs of television and the entertainment industry until in 2000, the finale of the show Survivor had a Super Bowl rating in 2000. 20, 30, whatever million people tuned in for the finale of Survivor. And then I'm, I'm sort of hyperbolizing, but the next day, reality television was no longer the dregs of content. And and fast forward three or four years, primarily the, the programming on, on television, in prime, even in prime time, Is or was reality television, right? And it became extraordinarily valuable. And companies that that realized that early on, the Endemols and Fremantles and of the world are billion dollar enterprises at this point, right? We have not had that survivor moment. That one thing that born out of this world and distributed in this ecosystem transcends to such a level that a survivor did or something else. That make everything, you, you sort of not rethink everything, but everybody take notice and, and no longer will short form content or digital content be considered sort of secondary or tertiary. But holy shit, this is here to stay. This There's real value here. Can you believe what just happened?
0: Yada, yada, yada. I don't know that we've had that yet. Great predictions. I totally agree with you on the idea that there's going to be consolidation and a lot of losers, particularly in the SVOD OTT race. I mean, there's over 300 just domestically, yeah. uh, let alone the explosion that's happening internationally. And there's just, there's not enough attention and audience uh, patience to support that many platforms. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? That's a good question.
1: I mean, look, I'm very bullish on kids. I think that They're just being trained in different ways, right? I remember seeing my daughter at three go up to my parents, her grandparents' television set that was at her level and trying to swipe it. Right, she, because everything she, should she be a everything touchscreen. Everything yeah, everything should be a touchscreen, sure. right? That, but she's growing up in a world literally where most screens are gesture based in some in some form. She watches content on an iPad or an iPhone or whatever. Very rarely, if ever, on television, and if on television, through some sort of digital ecosystem like iTunes or whatever the case may be. And that's only to. she's going to grow up and she's going to continue on those habits, right? They, I don't know they call them, the core nevers or what have you, but there's just going to be more of that. And so I think there's a real opportunity to innovate in the kids space, both in content, in education, in technology, and all of that sort of stuff. I'm not specifically saying, you know, just in the content that's being produced, that might be how we as a company play into that
0: ecosystem. But, but that, that's something that would be really, I would get into that space. And Dan, where can people find out more about you and more about Studio 71? Uh, they can find out
1: about uh, me on LinkedIn, I guess. And uh, weinstein 21 I think, is my handle on studio71us.com.
0: Well, this has been a blast. Thank you for sharing so Thanks. much. had a lot of fun. Backstory on Studio 71 and the Collective Digital Studio, of course. And then sharing your thoughts on where the industry is today and where it's headed. This was uh, This was great. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.